Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening, children of the night. Thanks for meeting us here on the outskirts of Chicago. We're still on the road, still moving, still working our way to our new home. Chicago served as a wonderful base of operations for years, not only because of the Windy City's colorful, wicked, and sometimes downright awful, infamous citizenry in history such as Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre on the north side, John Wayne Gacy lived on West Summerdale Avenue, and one of his alleged former employees founded the Satanic Ripper Crew. Those are some of the bad spots, sure, but they do color the city specifically for our kind of fiction. Chicago also is home to a large section of our contributing authors, and sometimes that same fiction's protagonists. A bit out of genre for us, but I do love Harry Dresden, and that magical detective's home is right here in Chicago. I thought that we'd take our time getting to where we're going, take one more look out onto the chilly surface of Lake Michigan under a half moon. It's Halloween. When I was young, my parents prohibited us kids from trick-or-treating. They were, like quite a bit of America, swept up in the satanic ritual abuse moral panic of the 1980s and 1990s and were certain that their children would be added to the sacrifices to the Dark Lord. Of course, there was nothing of any real substance to this scare. However, we lived in Detroit, and I'd later find out about Devil's Night. That would be the night before Halloween, and in some places is known as Mischief Night. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Detroit or the movie The Crow, Devil's Night used to be about, mainly, burning down as much of Detroit as you could possibly spark up. If you were so inclined, that is. So, perhaps my parents did protect their children from some sort of mayhem. Ugh, memories. Let's get on to our stories. Our first story comes to us from T.S. Brazelli. She writes software manuals by day and fantasy novels by night. 
She currently lives on the rainy west coast of Canada, but previously studied in Greece, where she fell in love with more than just the scenery. If she's not at the keyboard, she's likely making a mess in the kitchen or building things. The name of her story? Nine Nights. Marianne opened her mouth, but no breath escaped. Something pressed against her chest, drove out the air so that she could not scream. She fought to raise her sweat-bathed arms, but they rested on the white sheets like lead. If anyone walked by, they would never notice anything was wrong. Marianne fought, voiceless, sucking up the darkness and choking on it like water. Scissors gleamed in the moonlight. My lovely Marianne. A whisper of a voice, vaguely female, amused. Snip. The girl had dark eyes, dark skin, and dark hair like her own. But the girl was too thin, too hungry, too short. Marianne knew she must still be dreaming. She fought to wake, her eyes blurring over as she saw air and screamed. It was a hollow, faraway sound, but at once humid air flooded into her lungs, smelling of citronella, fried fish, and decay. Marianne kicked the blankets and mosquito net away. It was just a nightmare, she breathed, slowing her heartbeat. Who would not have nightmares when there was a coffin in the living room? She did not feel at home in her grandparents' house in the Philippine heat. She'd grown up in Canada beneath cool, rainy skies. Even at 14, she was too tall, too pale, too fat compared to the tiny woman in her family. She scratched at her legs, drawing blood as the itch of a hundred mosquito bites flared up again. Marianne wanted to go home, but she couldn't. It was the dead girl's fault. Her mouth burned and her head ached. She needed water. She stumbled downstairs in her pajamas, vaguely aware of the sound of a guitar strumming and the smell of cigarettes. There were still three days until the funeral. Until then, there was always someone awake with the body. There was no avoiding it. Marianne had to walk past the coffin to get to the kitchen. Aunties congregated around the empty plates of food, staring at her as she walked past. Marianne kept her eyes on the table. There were only a few egg rolls, pieces of chicken, rice, bits of glassy noodles stuck to a metal serving dish, a few bits of roasted pork. In the morning, the containers would be full again, and more people would come. Her father looked up from the couch where he sat with her grandfather. They were both dressed head to toe in black, despite the tropical heat. It did not seem right. Her father's eyes were red as if he'd been crying. She'd never seen him cry. Marianne couldn't cry for the girl in the glass coffin, whom she knew nothing about. She'd come for the white sand beaches, palm trees, and coconuts. Not for this. One of the older women stopped her as she passed. She had no choice but to smile and take the old woman's hand and press it up to her forehead respectfully for a blessing. Kamasta, po, Marianne said in Tagalog. Her accent grated on her ears. What is your name? Marianne, oh. That was how you addressed your elders, she remembered. So pretty, the old woman patted her cheek. You look like your cousin Carmelita. It came back to the girl in the coffin, as always. She was such a smart girl. She wanted to be a doctor, but her parents couldn't afford to send her. It's so sad. Marianne mumbled an excuse, slipped away, knowing she'd probably offended the woman. She walked over to the fridge and grabbed a cool bottle of water. She stared at the water-stained ceiling as she drank. White paint flaked away in places. The shadows of moths were silhouetted in the light fixture. More fluttered about, coming in and out as people walked in and out of the house. There would be no sleep in the house until the body was laid to rest. The family watched over the body in shifts. It was a blur of faces and smiles. 
Marianne tried to remember the names and faces of all the relatives she had never met. It seemed her family was related to everyone in town. A lizard skidded across the wall. The movement caught her attention. She watched it climb over into the next room, and she followed. She shut her eyes as she passed the glass coffin, but she couldn't erase the memory of the girl's face. The girl wore a borrowed white dress etched in lace. In her mind's eye, she saw the girl open her eyes and grin at her. Marianne felt the edge of the coffin scratch against her bare arm. She gasped and nearly knocked over a candle. In the coffin, not a dream, Carmelita's eyes were shut, as if she were sleeping. Marianne ran out the door and into the next room. It was a big house, bigger than any she'd lived in back in Canada. It was an old colonial-style mansion, left over from Spanish times. The Padilla family had been important people once, but the house had not been maintained. Some of the old stonework was crumbling and blackened with pollution, but Carmelita's family was poorer yet, so her grandparents had offered to let them hold the wake in their house. In this room, an old piano leaned against the wall, scratched with years of misuse by cousin upon cousin. The chandelier was dull brass. She tried the light switch, but the bulb burnt out in a blast of light, leaving her in darkness. Despite the humidity, the heat, she shivered as if a cold breeze filtered past her. Someone stared at her from across the room. She froze, looking into a face so similar to her own. She could not move. She thought her heart went still. What are you doing here in the dark, Anak? The elder lady, the house help, flicked on the light switch. It turned on without a fuss in an electric hiss. Marianne let out a breath, staring at a mirror. It had just been a reflection. Nothing, Poe. Carmelita loved to play the piano. She would sit here for hours. Do you play? No. Call me Yaya. Your father used to call me that when he was a boy. She smiled. Oh, what a terrible boy he was. Yaya patted her cheek, then frowned as she put her hand to Marianne's forehead. You are burning up. Fever. Come, you better lie down. Marianne stared at the mirror, transfixed by the reflection lit by the electric light and the moon. Her skin seemed too pale, a shade of death. Her hair seemed uneven on one side, as if... She trembled as she stumbled back past the body and collapsed onto the floor. Marianne rolled out of her bed, wiping the sweat off her neck with cold fingers. Her head still throbbed, and she wondered how long she'd been sleeping. As she put her feet onto the wooden floor, a cockroach swept past her toes into the darkness under the bed. She let out a little shriek before shaking out her slippers and sliding her feet in only after inspecting the insides. There was the sound of chanting as she walked downstairs, using the worn wooden banister to steady herself. Her legs felt like jelly. Talk picked up louder as she entered the living room, and people were dispersing, rosaries in hand. The tables were piled up with food again, but there were fewer people, and the coffin was missing. Ate Marianne? A young boy in a baseball cap and a young girl in a floral dress came up to her, hesitant. Marianne searched through her memory to recall names and faces, but she couldn't. Yes, she replied, aware that she was dressed in pajamas while everyone else was in black or white. Can you finish the scary story you started to tell us at Labingen? The boy searched for the English word. Funeral. Marianne frowned. The funeral? Yesterday. I can't sleep until I find out what happened. Marianne's mind was blank. I'm sorry, I don't feel so well. I need to find my mom and dad. Marianne walked fast, trying to avoid everyone as she wound through the mourners. She heard her parents' voices out in the yard. 
Marianne paused at the screen door because her mother was yelling. She could see their silhouettes against the concrete wall away from the fluorescent lights of the house. Her father tossed a cigarette onto the dirt and rubbed it into the ground with his feet. He'd given up smoking years ago. Her mother stormed towards the house. Her cheeks were red with anger. You should have told me, she said as she flung open the door and stopped just before crashing into Marianne. Oh, Marianne, are you feeling better, dear? She placed a hand on Marianne's forehead, patted her back, but glanced over her shoulder at her husband's hunched form in the yard. The fever's gone. Mom, how long have I been in bed? You were well enough to go to the funeral. You seemed fine yesterday. We already had the funeral? The medication must have been too strong. Her mother frowned. You don't remember? Marianne shook her head. Go back to bed, dear. You look so pale. Get some rest. When can we leave, Mom? Not until the nine-day novena for the dead is finished. If we're well enough after then, we can still go to the beach. Nine more days of food and family. Her mother walked away. Marianne felt a chill in her chest as if she'd been stabbed with an icicle. Her heart stopped beating for a moment and she grasped at the wall to steady herself. She looked around the room to call for help, to say something, but no one was looking in her direction. As abruptly as the feeling came, she felt fine again. Marianne walked back to the children. What kind of story did I tell you? she asked, but the children did not seem to hear. They ran past her after a black-winged moth. Yaya looked straight at her, eyebrows crossed together. She was not a relative, but her father's one-time nursemaid. Her brown skin was wrinkled, her hair white. A cockroach ran over Yaya's feet, and the old woman crushed it with the heel of her slipper. The mosquito bite stopped itching. Her head was clear for the first time in days, but outside the sky was dark and rain drenched the house in sheets. Wind rattled the balcony door and water dripped down into a pool in the middle of the hardwood floor. She paused, trying to listen for people downstairs, but it was quiet. The window shutter slapped shut, leaving her in the dark for a moment. She panicked as the dream of nights before came back to her, but a moment later the light returned and she let out a breath. Fever and nightmares, nothing more, she tried to remind herself. She could see a light in the kitchen from the stairwell. She could smell garlic rice and sausages, breakfast smells. She couldn't remember the last time she'd eaten, but neither did she feel hungry. She made her way down the steps, oddly light. The heat was bearable for the first time. It was all very odd. She walked into the kitchen, but no one looked up from their meal. Yaya was at the sink washing out a pan. Marianne realized that it must be a dream. She saw Carmelita seated at the table, cutting the sausages with a dull knife, spooning rice and some tomatoes into her mouth. I can't wait to go home, Mom, the girl at the table smiled. I thought you wanted to go to the beach, Marianne. But I can't swim, Carmelita replied. All those lessons and you've forgotten? You can't just forget. I mean, it's been a while, Carmelita laughed. Marianne felt her blood freeze over. She walked up to the table and cleared her throat, but no one turned in her direction. She slammed a fist against the table. A glass of water vibrated, nothing more. Not even a glance from her mother or father. Mom! Dad! Marianne waved her hands in front of their faces. Her father continued to flip through the channels on the TV from his chair. Yaya dropped the pan in the sink and turned away, apologizing, scrubbing frantically. That's not me, Marianne breathed. Do we really need to stay for all nine days? It's not like Carmelita was that close. She was just a cousin. Her father set down the remote, his eyes still bloodshot. She's still family. 
Carmelita frowned as she shoved more sausage into her mouth. Her mother winced, looked away from her father. Marianne pushed at the chair, but though she could feel the cold metal beneath her fingers, it did not move. She swung at the pitcher of water on the table, but glass did not shatter. Why can't you see me? She shouted, her eyes filling with tears. The room began to swarm with cockroaches and moths and lizards. They crept in through the cracks in the windowsills, up through the pipes in the sink, beneath the door to the rear of the house, filling the kitchen. Her mother screamed, and Yaya crushed a few cockroaches with her pan. Her father jumped up onto the couch. What's going on? They began to huddle together, everyone except Marianne and the girl who wanted to steal her life. I think it's the storm. They're just trying to get out of the rain. Her mom squealed as she squatted away the insects from her legs. Carmelita caught Marianne by the wrist. She stared into her eyes. So she can see me, Marianne thought, triumphant for a moment. Be gone, little ghost, Carmelita said, digging a nail into Marianne's wrist. Marianne shrieked as a drop of her blood dripped onto the tile floor. The insects rushed away as if it were poison. Carmelita smiled open-mouthed, and Marianne thought she saw two yellow eyes staring back from inside the girl's mouth. The world went dark. Marianne tossed the mosquito net aside and ran out of the bedroom. Outside, the moon was shining again. The storm had gone, and she did not know how many days it passed. She could hear her parents in the next room and ran to find them. Her father's hands were balled into fists. Her mother's cheeks were red again. Marianne walked into the room between them. They stepped away from Marianne so that they were still facing each other, as if to ignore her. She wanted to shout to get their attention, but she was afraid that Carmelita would hear her. The lights in the room flickered, and her parents both looked up for a moment. We should leave, Renee. Have you seen how upset Marianne is? This is all too much for her. I said no. Carmelita was my daughter, too. I can't abandon her now. What difference does it make? You ignored her for 17 years, and now she's dead. You never told me. I know you feel guilty, but what about me, Renee? What about Marianne? You never told me you had another daughter. You have no right to make us suffer for what you did. It wasn't right. Her father was near tears. Marianne had never seen her parents cry. If I had sponsored her to come to Canada, she could have had better medical treatment. She might never have died. I should never have left her behind. Marianne stepped back out the door. She had a sister. She stumbled back against the wall and a lizard ran up at a black streak. She'd always hated being an only child. She felt numb. Carmelita was her sister. She hates me, she realized, remembering the look in Carmelita's eyes at the kitchen table. She wants my life. Marianne shivered, pressed up against the wall. She sucked in her breath and walked down the steps. They creaked beneath her feet. She saw Yaya look up, rosary in hand. Their eyes met for a moment, and she looked away as she walked straight toward the kitchen. Marianne saw Carmelita seated with the two children, huddled together as if to tell a story. Marianne ran past. Carmelita could see her when everyone else could not, but there was someone else who could see her too. She raced into the kitchen, heart pounding. The crowd parted to let her pass, but no one looked at her. It was as if she were invisible. She walked up to Yaya and placed a hand on her shoulder. The old woman shivered and adjusted her dress. She turned her back to Marianne and walked out of the kitchen to the piano room. Marianne followed. Yaya, I don't know if you can hear me, but I know you can see me. Please help me. Marianne slammed her hand against the piano. The keys rang loud and off-tune. Yaya shut the door. I'm not a ghost. Please, Marianne pleaded.
but she could not feel the tears sliding down her cheek. Carmelita's stolen my life. Please help me. What is this? What's happening? Yaya crossed herself and kissed the cross on her rosary. Mankukulo. Yaya looked at her in the eye, but did not go any closer. Marianne searched for the meaning. Witchcraft? Come, Anak, do not let her see you. She will try to leave before the nine days is over. You cannot let her. She opened the door and light flooded back into the dark piano room. She walked straight through the kitchen, the back door, and out the gate into the street of the town. There were people out playing card games under the fluorescent lights. Marianne caught up to the old woman in the street. Yaya was careful not to touch her. She walked a few feet away and did not look at her. Her slippers clacked against the street. The moon was bright enough to see by as they moved away from the main roads toward the church. The face was in shadows, ornate and baroque, blackened windows. Marianne felt as if people were watching her from the shadows, but she could see nothing. They kept going until they reached the concrete wall of the cemetery. The cemetery was not large, but it was full. There was no green, only concrete. Some graves were marked by slabs on the ground, but others were stacked in layers. In between, several larger mausoleums were scattered around. Old bones flashed white in the moonlight. Marianne stepped back and away from the wilted flowers and graves, keeping to the middle of the narrow path. They walked toward a concrete mausoleum. The door was made of iron bars and inside three concrete graves. Her great-grandparents were buried there, Marianne thought. The third... She shuddered as Yaya tried the door. It swung open noisily. A dog growled, appearing behind them. Dark fur, yellow eyes, its shoulders hunched low. Marianne saw other dogs moving between the graves. Yaya held out a hand, said a word, and flicked her fingers. The dog disappeared with a whimper, melting back into the shadows. Help me if you can, Yaya said, as she knelt down slowly in front of the newest grave, her knees clicking with the strain. Marianne pushed against the slab. It opened a fraction. There were growls from outside. Marianne looked back, hoping the bars would keep the dogs out. She and Yaya kept pushing until the slab was free. Yaya started digging through the coffin. Marianne stared at the girl inside. It was her face that stared back. Carmelita looked as if she were still sleeping. Her body had not yet begun to decay. Her mouth was partly open, her eyes closed. Yaya pulled something out from under the pillow beneath the body's head. It was a rag doll made of black cloth, a dark ribbon tied around its waist, holding several clippings of hair close to the doll's body. Marianne knew whose hair it was. How do you... Who was Carmelita's mother? Marianne stepped back, seeing only then the resemblance between the dead girl and the old woman. Yaya said nothing as a snake pushed its way out from between the dead girl's lips. Marianne thought she might be sick. Close it. They both shoved at the slab, knocking it back into place, sweating and panting both. Yaya rubbed at her back, but her other hand still gripped the doll. She walked right out of the mausoleum, and Marianne walked after her. A woman stood there, with long, dark hair, pale skin, almond eyes. Marianne did not recognize her. She scratched at the head of a black dog with long fingernails. Her dress was too large, the flesh on her arms too loose. She looked as if she had been beautiful once. Her eyes were as yellow as the dog's. Traitor, she hissed at Yaya. You always treated the Padilla family better than your own flesh and blood, Mama. Why are you helping that spoiled, fat, coddled child? Her worthless father should never have left Carmelita here.
I begged him to take her, but he refused. He gave his new family everything and left us with nothing. Don't you want your granddaughter to have what she should have? Clouds hid the moon as the wind began to whip against Marianne's cheeks. The first drop of warm rain hissed down from the sky, hot as blood. Yaya stepped forward, blocking Marianne's path. Not this way. It is not right, you devil girl. Yaya took a small knife out of her pocket. The madwoman yelled and jumped at her mother, grabbing at the knife. The doll went tumbling. Metal fell onto the ground. There was a hiss. Cockroaches, lizards, and moths began to come out of the cracks between the tombstones, pouring over the wall like a dark wave, even as the rain began to drench them. Marianne ran for the knife, feeling around the slick earth for the blade. It pricked her hand as she grabbed for it through a pile of legs and wings and biting, scratching mouths. The two women struggled in front of her, swallowed up by the insect horde. Marianne plucked the damp doll off the wet dirt and cut the ribbon that bound it around the waist. Dark locks of hair fell into the puddles, and Marianne screamed. The insects blotted out the night. Marianne scratched her leg and blinked awake. The room was full of sunlight. It lit the mosquito net like... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The cathedral. She jumped out of bed. She found her parents in the kitchen with her grandparents. Where's Yaya? She asked. We haven't seen her today, Marianne. Why? Marianne began to run down the street, past the church, toward the cemetery, remembering the way in the daylight. Mourners had come to visit, bringing flowers, tidying their loved ones' graves. They looked up at the tall Canadian-born girl who raced into the cemetery toward the Padilla Mausoleum. She pulled at the door, but it was locked, shut tight with a padlock. She searched through the cemetery and nearly tripped on the body of the old woman, slumped between two concrete graves. Clutched to Yaya's chest was a black rag doll, a ribbon hanging off of it. A few scattered hairs were caught in the folds of the rags. Marianne tucked the doll into her waistband beneath the loose top of her shirt. Her parents found her there, sobbing beside the body. Someone ran to find the doctor and the police, but she knew there was nothing anyone could do. I want to go home, Mom, Dad, she cried. I don't care about the beaches. Can we go home, please? We don't have to stay for all nine days, do we? Her father looked pale. No, let's go home. It's enough. Back at the house, her sorrow and guilt abated. Marianne retied the ribbon around the doll's waist, looped a hair between it, and smiled. All fixed again. She spat a frog out of her mouth and packed it in her suitcase, just in case. That was T.S. Brazelli's Nine Nights, as read to us by Ruth Stearns. Ruth got her start as a narrator by reading to her husband on car trips through the empty grasslands of central Florida. 
She also writes speculative fiction of her own, although she is best known for combating circular entropy as a college administrator. Contact her via her blog, if you'd like. Link, as always, will be in the show notes. Our second story comes from Scott Edelman. Yes, that Scott Edelman. I'm not sure he needs us to speak too much about his well-known accomplishments, but let's put a few in here for those that haven't been in the loop. He has published more than 75 short stories in magazines such as Postscripts, The Twilight Zone, Absolute Magnitude, Science Fiction Review, and Fantasy Book, and in anthologies such as The Solaris Book of New Science Fiction, Crossroads, Meta Horror, Once Upon a Galaxy, Moonshots, Mars Probes, Forbidden Planets. His poetry has appeared in Asimov's Amazing Dreams and Nightmares and Others. What Will Come After, a collection of his zombie fiction, and What We Still Talk About, a collection of his science fiction stories, were both published in 2010. He has been a Stoker Award finalist five times in the categories of both short story and long fiction. Additionally, What Will Come After is currently a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Award. In the show notes will be a link to his homepage, which fully lists his well-deserved accolades. Tonight's story, from Mr. Edelman, can be found in that very What Will Come After, for which he may find himself the recipient of the Shirley Jackson Award. But it was also published in The Book of More Flesh, which incidentally is from the All Flesh Must Be Eaten universe, which is a role-playing game that features zombies and gets quite popular around Halloween. If those sort of games are your bag, I'd recommend checking it out. And now, Scott Edelman's Goobers. Willard woke to echoing screams. The sound didn't bother him at all. He had gotten used to those screams over the past few months. So used to them, in fact, that by now it had become something of a ritual for him. Wake to the sounds of fear. Start a new reel up in the theater's projection booth. Fall asleep a moment or two later. Jolt awake whenever the audience freaked out at the scary parts and then get ready to start another new reel. Lately, he'd been spending more time on the job sleeping than waking. Still, he hadn't missed a cue for changing a reel yet. Chocolate. He smelled chocolate. When he touched his cheek, his fingers came away brown. He glanced down to the remnants of a box of raisinets scattered across his desk, and realized that he'd fallen asleep face down, melting them into the desktop. It wasn't the first time he'd stirred to find himself like that. Movies always went better with a snack, and that he sometimes ended up face down in them didn't change that fact. When Dan, his boss, had first switched over to his all-zombie, all-the-time lineup, Willard had occasionally peeked out to see what had made the audiences scream, but it was never anything worth his effort. Just caro syrup, food coloring, and pig entrails. He quickly became bored sick with the repetitive nature of these undead flicks, with corpses jumping out of closets, with brain munchers, with doubters who died and believers who, well, who seemed to die anyway. Night of the Living Dead The incredible strange creatures who stopped living and became mixed-up zombies. Voodoo Dawn Willard thought them all ridiculous, thought Dan's whole theme idea ridiculous, and longed for the variety of the old days. But that's why he was only the projectionist, and not the manager, 
for it looked as if his boss had guessed right, had made the right business decision. Terrifying reports were coming out of the big cities every day, and so Dan figured that, given the chance, customers might turn to the movies to soak up all they could about the coming plague, might choose to sift through the cinematic past in search of survival tips. Dan had been right. Ticket sales were through the roof. Willard was stunned. What fiction could teach anyone at a time like this, he just couldn't see. But he didn't complain, at least not out loud. The concept kept him employed when so many other types of businesses were falling under the threat of an approaching apocalypse. People seemed to get something out of the unreal dead, and, what's more, bought out the concession stand while they did so. Movies and candy went hand in hand which meant that Willard's hand was guaranteed to go hand in hand with a weekly paycheck, which was just fine with him. So when he muttered, he muttered quietly. He found it hard to believe what was going on in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, all those big cities that had once seemed impossibly distant and now felt terribly close. Even with the news footage that confronted him each morning, it still seemed like like a movie. And yet what the television showed him each day, though it mimicked what he spooled each night, that was real. Graves splitting open, the dead coming back with a new life, people being eaten alive, their shredded remnants rising to begin the cycle all over again. He used to envy those who lived in the metropolises, but no more. The country was falling apart, or, more precisely, being eaten alive, and no one knew exactly why. The shouts from the theater were still going on, longer than seemed necessary, and not just in response to some tense, fleeting moment on the screen. They were continuous now, almost a living, breathing thing. Willard, who'd long since given up on the audience, slid his wheeled stool forward so he could peer through the small square window and into the crowd below. In the flickering light, as sluggish zombies stalked humans upon the screen, Willard could see the same scene enacted in the bowels of the theater. Only the zombies below were not so sluggish as the ones above. Two zombies toyed with an old woman, each holding an opposite arm as they played a ghoulish tug-of-war. Her arms grew shorter as they ate their way from the knuckles, through the wrists, then to the elbows. The higher they chewed, the more wildly she thrashed, until she could take no more and fell to the worn carpeting, where Willard could not see her. One of the undead cradled a young boy in his arms, gnawing on his skull, seeking the soft treasure within. One man moved wildly back and forth in the middle of a row, trapped as zombies approached him from either end. As they came within reach, he leapt forward toward the screen, hurtling over the line of seats, falling, grunting, getting up to leap again and again, until he got to the very front row, where he became lost in a waiting mob of hungry hands. Those not under immediate attack ran for the exits, but were washed back into the theater by waves of further zombies thrusting in the doors. Willard could not bear to watch, but he watched, horrified anyway, and this time he lost track of time. 
The projector sputtered out without him remembering to cue the next reel, and suddenly all that was ahead in the theater was the huge white rectangle of the screen. The room was brighter than before, and as the free end of the reel snapped repeatedly beside him, he could see the mayhem even more clearly. He could take no more, and so he killed the projector, which sent the theater into darkness. He slid to the floor, where he listened to the screams and crunching sounds in the darkness. Eventually the screaming stopped, but the crunching went on. He became lost in his mind, only made aware of the outer world again by the sound of feet shuffling across the cracked linoleum outside the door of the locked projection room. After some prints had been stolen, Dan had reinforced the door, and this wasn't the first time Willard found himself thankful for that. He hoped it wouldn't be the last. The lurker outside brought on an upswelling of panic. Willard needed to get out but the sound at the door told him that there was nowhere to go. If the zombies could reach to the heart of the city to feed on the customers of the theater, then the rest of the city had to be in the same state. Though his goose flesh tried to tell him otherwise, he was probably safest where he was. And yet, even though he'd been snacking since the beginning of his shift, the nod at the pit of his stomach told him he could not stay still for long. He scooped up the last of the raisinets, but a handful of pellets, looking not so very different from rabbit droppings, would do little to feed his hunger. He was a man used to keeping his stomach full, but it wasn't only that. He knew that he had to get out of that room to get some more food, or else he'd starve in there. And how stupid would that be? The projection room was barely larger than a coffin, and he normally couldn't wait to rush out of there at the end of each shift. He certainly couldn't bear the thought of spending eternity there. He needed time to think, to plan where he could possibly go that would be safe. But first he needed some food. He wasn't the kind of man who could plot a course of action when hungry. He listened to the darkness below, but could not tell whether the zombies were resting there silently after their gorging, or had gone on to other conquests, searching the theater for more victims. Victims like him. He needed to create a distraction, and he smiled, because luck had given him one of the greatest distractions ever invented. He started up the projector once more, hoping that the bellowing sounds of life from the theater's speakers would draw away the zombie at his door, as well as any others who wandered the halls in a dull imitation of hope, long enough for him to sneak down to the concession stand. He pressed an ear to the door, and could hear the shambling grow louder at first, as if a creature that knew nothing of scurrying was attempting to rush off. But then the sound dimmed. When the hallway seemed clear, Willard nervously opened the door. There seemed little evidence of the zombies passing. In fact, a smear of blood that stretched across the wall mixed so well with the general dinginess that Dan had allowed to descend upon the theater that Willard at first did not notice it. Only when his hand slid across the stain and he realized that it was wet to the touch did he feel a true sense of fear and almost bolted back to the room. But he knew that way held no promise of escape. 
He took the stairs down slowly, cursing each creak, glad he'd turned the speakers up as loud as possible. He paused before the swinging double doors to the theater, searching for the courage that would let him peer within. He could not bring himself to raise his eyes to the small circular windows in either door. And so he pressed his eye to the thin crack between them. He could make out movement there, but he could make out nothing of the details. After what he had seen from above, he knew that it was probably better that way. He retreated to what had once been a well-stocked candy counter, which was now an explosion of sugar and shattered glass. Colorful boxes spilled out onto the floor, their contents sprayed wide, apparently open not from being sampled, but from being stepped on. The floor seemed like something Jackson Pollock would have created, red blood overlaid with red ketchup and then blended with mustard and dollops of relish. The hot dogs were tumbled down beside the vast stain, having been knocked from the wire tree on which they'd spun. Many of them had bites snatched from them, but as far as Willard could tell, none had more than one. They had each been tasted and rejected. Zombies didn't like their meat cooked. Listening carefully for any sudden sounds from the theater, he stuffed his pockets with goobers and dots and Nestle's chocolate-covered pretzel bites. This wasn't the first time he'd taken candy without paying for it. The difference was, though, that before it had only been Dan he had worried about catching him. But back then, he couldn't resist. Couldn't bear to watch a movie without his mouth in motion. Most people were like that. He gave the remnants of the hot dogs a last, long, hungry look, knowing that they were probably what would best sustain him through whatever was to come. But he couldn't bear the thought of eating them. Not now. Not without knowing for sure which had, or had not, been chomped at by a zombie, or even merely touched. He suddenly remembered the freezer, and so he squeezed behind the counter, hoping that its stainless steel doors had proved too tough for the zombies to open with their thick fingers. Perhaps he could find some frozen hot dogs there that he'd be able to stomach. Instead, there was Dan. Or what was left of Dan. The man's eyelids were open, but there were no longer any eyes within. His arms were bent and broken in positions arms and legs were not meant to go, and the way he'd been left made what remained of him look like the remnants of a fried chicken dinner. The clothing shredded off his skin, the skin clumsily shredded off his flesh, and in many places the flesh shredded entirely off his bones. Willard was able to suppress a scream, but he couldn't control his leaden feet, which caused him to stumble back and thud against a wall. He could hear a scrabbling movement swell within the theater in response, and his heart, which had seemed to stop, started up again. He ran back toward the only refuge he knew, taking the stairs three at a time until he was locked in the projection room again. Exhausted, he checked the lock three times, and then pulled his pockets inside out, and emptied his candy on his desk before the packages could melt into a sugary mess. After he caught his breath, he nervously approached the window and peered out into the theater again. His eyes adjusted to the darkness, a darkness made less black by Zombie Island Massacre flickering across the screen and by the strips of tiny lights that sparkled along the carpeting on either side of each aisle. 
Some zombies stumbled up and down those aisles, tripping over the scattered bones and bodies that remained from the feast. But others were actually perched in the worn, padded seats. He could not see their faces. He was not even sure, due to the manner of their deaths, whether they even had faces, or whether he could have read their emotions there even if he'd seen them. But their body language, the way their shoulders tilted forward and their heads tilted back, he would swear that they seemed almost expectant. They actually seemed to be looking at the screen. It seemed ridiculous to even think it, but they appeared to be watching the movie. He, too, looked out at the screen, which showed a group of bloated zombies shambling along. He wondered if, just as humans had once come to the theater looking for information on what was going to happen to them if the zombies truly came, for help with how they were going to behave in their new world, the zombies could be doing the same. Maybe they also felt the need, at least those for whom humanity was not so far behind, to figure out the strange society that was to come, and how to perform their parts in the ghastly play. There was only one way Willard could learn whether this was true, whether the zombies were just sitting there, only looking at the screen by coincidence, or whether it was something more. Perhaps they were struggling to remember the act of going to a movie. He had to know. He was perhaps the only one in the world in such an odd situation as to be capable of knowing. And so, with a dedication he had never known when this was just a job, and the audience was only made of customers, he spooled reel after reel, and watched, and waited. He screened White Zombie, Zombies on Broadway, even the deliriously awful Plan 9 from Outer Space, running through all the films that Dan, in his wisdom, had stalked. Dan would never know what had happened, but Willard would not let his foresight go to waste. A sugar high coursed through him as he watched the theater and its inhabitants. The changes there were slow and, at first, subtle. With each passing moment, more zombies came, shuffling down the aisles in apparently random motion. Some wandered off again, but others stayed and sat, until Willard finally noticed that the theater had become packed without him realizing it, with every seat taken. Those newcomers who arrived after that merely stood in the aisles, rocking in place as they stared at the screen. They were hypnotized, seduced into submission by the same special effects that Willard had previously mocked. They seemed to make no distinction between the gore of Dawn of the Dead and the farce of Dead Alive. They were equally wrapped by all. As he gobbled his way through his precious stockpile of candy, he tried to discern what they were looking for up there on the screen. He prayed that one zombie would turn to another so he could see their faces and decode what they were waiting for. But unlike humans in a theater, they seemed to have nothing to say to each other. And even though they were together, they were alone. All he could ever see was the back of their heads. It was maddening. The movies were teaching them something. He knew it. He was teaching them, as he'd been teaching humans for years. But this time, he felt the need to see it happening. They were listening to his movies. He knew they would listen to him. 
he unlocked the door to the projection room and found the hallway deserted, as he knew it would be. The films had netted them all. Once downstairs, he moved slowly down a narrow side corridor that ran along the length of the theater and led him up on the stage behind the screen. He folded back an edge of the screen and peered through to the audience of the undead. Their faces were tilted up, and Willard felt as if they were looking at him rather than just the screen. He knew he could reach them, just knew that he could. He stepped around the screen and walked to the center of the stage. As the film flickered against his body, he began to speak. Listen to me, he said, but was allowed to get no further, for soon all that came from his lips were his own echoing screams. Only this time, there was no one left for those screams to wake. And as dozens of zombies munched down on him, the film brightening the air around him and the actors above going through their ghoulish paces, one final thought went through Willard's mind. He'd been right all along. Whether zombie or human, it was still a universal truth that all movies went better with a snack. That was Scott Edelman's Goobers, as read to us by Jim Phillips. Jim is a world wanderer, lives on a mountaintop in Southern California. He enjoys playing in a park with his young son, touring around on his motorcycle, and considering his daughter's high cost of education. He also has several degrees in engineering and can claim to speak five languages, or at least enough to keep him in or out of trouble as he so chooses. And that will be our evening, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for more Tales to Terrify as we continue our journey to our new home for these horrific stories. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. 